0: we could just pray and go home, huh? So good. We're not going to because I wrote a message that I want to preach. So, but hey, can we give it up for these men and women for leading us in worship? Love them. I don't know about you guys, but I'm super grateful to be in a church where we have such talented people. Uh, who love Jesus and who love us enough to use their gifts to serve us by leading us like that. And so if you see the choir or the band members around in the building today, just thank them. They put a lot of time in to get ready for today. But if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in the Old Testament book of Isaiah together. Isaiah chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Isaiah chapter 9. Well, back in 2008, I traveled to Burkina Faso for the first time. And if you're a guest with us in the room today, Burkina is a little country in West Africa where our church does a lot of work. We plant churches, we drill water wells, we send mission teams, we support missionaries, and so on. Well, on that very first trip, I was with a group of men, and we were going village to village talking to leaders about clean water. And these villages that we were in were literally at the ends of the earth, okay? No electricity, no running water, no access to medical care. Families live in mud huts. They grow all their own food, and they work really hard each day just to survive. And so we weren't staying in hotel rooms while we were out there, okay? Uh, We weren't even staying in a mission house. No, we were sleeping outside on cots under the stars, Pretty amazing experience, and just FYI, if you ever go to Africa with us, you might get a very similar experience, but I'll never forget that first night, we're all getting ready for bed, and so we crawl into our sleeping bags, the generator goes off, the lights on the vehicles go off, Uh, we all turn our flashlights off, the fires that were built, they were all extinguished, there wasn't a light anywhere in sight, and we were engulfed in a darkness I had never experienced before like truly it was the type of darkness that you could feel and I just remember thinking to myself in that moment number one if something happened to us out here they would never find our bodies but then number two I had no idea the world could be such a dark place now we know from science that darkness isn't technically a thing instead it's the deficiency of a thing called called light right And so we understand at a very basic level, darkness can only exist when and where light isn't present. But hear me, that's not just true in a physical sense, it's also true in a spiritual one. You see, the Bible often uses darkness as a symbol or a metaphor to describe the evil and wickedness that exists in our world. And all you have to do is look around for about five seconds to see what I'm talking about, right? Uh, That darkness looks like pride, greed, violence, war, rape, murder, injustice, poverty, racism, sexism, death, disease, and the list goes on and on. And the only reason that type of darkness exists in our world today is due to an absence of light, But here is the great hope we have at Christmas, my friends, and this is what we just sang about and celebrated together. We remember this time of year that a great light has come to dispel the darkness. Amen? Like this is the hope of Christmas, that a great light has come to dispel the darkness. And if your Bibles are open to Isaiah 9, we're going to dive in, pick it up in verse 1, and I'll explain what I mean. Here's what the Bible says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. What I want to do is stop here and just give you some context and background for the text because I want you to really understand why this was written and and what it is that we're uh, uh, studying today. And so, a few notes on this, okay? Isaiah penned these words some 700 years before Jesus was born into the world. And he pinned them specifically to the nation of Judah. If you go back to the year 931 B.C., you discover that the kingdom of Israel at that time split into two kingdoms. You had Israel to the north and Judah to the south, and out of the two, Judah was the more spiritually significant. You see, it was in that nation that Jerusalem was located, God's holy city. In Jerusalem, the temple was constructed, and so God's presence was there. The priesthood was there. Uh, If you wanted to worship God or make sacrifices for your sins, you had to travel to that city in that specific nation. But it was also where the Davidic dynasty was established. You see, there was a king named King David. He was Israel's second king, easily its most famous king. And God made him a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that through his descendants, he would one day send a king into the world who would rule over his people forever. Listen, all that to say, Judah was a very blessed nation. And you would think with all those blessings that they would remain faithful to God. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Uh, In fact, when Isaiah wrote this to the nation, the people were in a very, very dark place. We learned from chapter 1 that the people living there had rebelled against God. They had forsaken him. And we get a picture of that rebellion in a king that was actually reigning during Isaiah's ministry. This guy's name was Ahaz. Uh, During his reign, the very powerful nation of Assyria was invading and conquering many of the surrounding nations. And they were actually on their way at this time to conquer Israel, Syria, and Judah. And so the kings of Israel and Syria decide, hey, let's band together and fight back. They also decide, we need to make Judah help out. Like, they're not going to get off the hook when it comes to this. And so they devised this plan. Together, let's invade that southern kingdom, that nation, and let's conquer it and force all those people to fight with us and to fight for us. Well, our boy Ahaz catches wind of their little plan, and he starts getting worried, and so God, in his grace, sends the prophet Isaiah to him with a very simple message, and you can actually read that message in its entirety in Isaiah 7, but basically what he says is this, hey, uh, Ahaz, don't worry about Israel and Syria, like, I've got your back, bro, that's my interpretation of the message, but like you get what I'm saying, all right? He just wanted the king to know, listen, no need to fret. I'm the God of this nation. These are my people. I'm going to defend you, and I'm going to protect you against your enemies. So don't lose hope. Just trust in me. Well, I would love to tell you that Ahaz heard that, and he trusted God in faith, but he didn't. Instead, he runs to the king of Assyria, and he says to him, why don't you guys go ahead and come on into our nation? We'll just open the doors for you. I'll be your servant, and I'll pay you to defend us against our enemies. So catch that. This dude literally ignores God altogether, and he puts every ounce of hope and trust in this pagan king who was hostile toward both God and his people. And as a result, this already dark nation grew even darker. But it's here in Isaiah 9 that we find hope. You see, as we read just a moment ago, Isaiah comes to the people with a message, and this is just beautiful, and it fascinates me. He tells this nation of people who had rebelled against God, hey, listen, in spite of your rebellion, God in His grace is sending a light into the world to dispel the darkness. And you and I know today from the New Testament that this light came in the person of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, amen? Look, we see that truth reflected in a very unique way in the book of Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew was written by one of Jesus' disciples named, I'm just making sure you're still out there with me, okay, because I know it's early and I'm giving you a lot of information right out of the gate, so just checking, but, but Matthew wrote this Gospel and he wrote specifically to the Jewish people of his day who had failed to believe in Jesus while he was here. And his goal was to use their scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, to prove to them that Jesus was in fact God's promised Savior and King. This is why, by the way, when you read the Gospel of Matthew, you will find more Old Testament quotations than in any of the other Gospels. And so when you come to Matthew chapter 4, you actually see him quoting Isaiah 9 as part of his case. And I want to show this to you. Look at it. We'll have it on the screens for you. Now when he, this is Jesus, heard that John, that's John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of, here are these lands again, Zebulun and Naphtali, so that, catch this, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. These lands of Zebulun and Naphtali that are are mentioned by both Isaiah and Matthew, these were situated in the region of Galilee in the far north of Israel. And so when travelers came into the country from the north, these are the lands they would come to first. And so when Assyria eventually invaded and conquered Israel from the north, guess which lands were devastated first? Yeah, they're hard to pronounce, aren't they? So let me just say Zebulun and Naphtali, right? And so here's what Isaiah is teaching. He's saying, look, that's where the great light's going to show up first. People in those lands and in that region who are walking in darkness because of the devastation, they're going to see the great light before anybody else sees him." And then hundreds of years later, Matthew comes along after Jesus has lived, died, and rose again, ascended to heaven, and he quotes Isaiah to say, they saw the light. They saw the light. He was here. After John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus moved into those lands, and he set up shop, and he started performing ministry before going anywhere else, all to prove that he is the great light Isaiah spoke of. And what I want to do for the rest of our time together this morning is just camp out in a couple of verses from Isaiah 9, and I want to describe for you the hope that we have in this great light that is Jesus. So check it out. Isaiah 9, we'll pick it up in verse 6. Even if you're not a church person in the room today, you've probably seen these verses on like a Christmas plate or a coffee cup somewhere at some point in your life, right? Just beautiful verses, but here's what he says, for to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in the first part of verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So, in these verses, Isaiah is calling our attention to three elements of the light. Okay, what he wants us to see is this. He wants us to see the light's form. He wants us to see its authority, and he wants us to see its character. So again, he's calling our attention to three elements of this great light. Number one, its form. Number two, its authority. And number three, its character. And what I want to do is just walk through these and unpack them for you, okay? So form. Isaiah, first and foremost, wants us to know that when this light would come into the world, it would come in the form of a child who would be born. Now think about that, if you will, okay? and not as church people, like, think about it like normal people, all right, because this is weird. Isaiah is literally telling us that God's solution to the problem of darkness in our world would be a kid. Strange, isn't it? I don't know. It sounds ridiculous to many of us in the room, and it probably sounds most ridiculous to all the parents in the room. I mean, if you're anything like me, the only thing you're thinking right now is, glad it wasn't my kid. You know, if it was my kid, we'd be all in big trouble. My kid can barely clean their room. So thank goodness it wasn't my kid. But see, that's the great news. It wasn't just any kid. It was God's own kid. As Isaiah goes on to write, this child who would be born, he would also be a son, specifically the eternal son of God, Jesus Christ. The son as Colossians 1 tells us, that was before all things, who created all things, in whom all things hold together, that Son would be given to us as a gift. And what we learn from that about the light's form is simply this, that when the light would come, it would come in the form of both humanity and deity. Are you tracking with me here? So in other words, the light would come as fully God, Son, Son, fully man child all at the same time which jesus was and i want to tell you why that matters so much okay if you're taking notes you might want to write this down but first as man jesus experienced the darkness of the world like us as man jesus experienced the darkness of the world like us this is unique to christianity my friends There's no other religion or belief system in the world that claims that their God stepped out of some place and came here to suffer alongside of us. Again, this is unique to Jesus. Hebrews 4.15 talks about this. That passage tells us that while Jesus was here, he was tempted by sin and tested by hardship in every way. Right? He was attacked by the devil. He had close friends abandon him. There were people that he loved that died unexpectedly. He had family members write him off as a crazy person. He suffered like us in every way, yet unlike us, he suffered without sin. This is why you and I can go to Jesus in moments of temptation and weakness and not only be understood by him, but receive the strength and help we need to make it through. He's a man, and he experienced the darkness of the world like us. But secondly, as God, Jesus defeated the darkness of the world for us. As God, he defeated the darkness of the world for us. This is what we as Christians call the good news of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did for us what we could never do for ourselves. But he humbled himself, stepped off the throne of heaven. He put on our skin, and he came to live among us. And he did it first and foremost to live the life that we can't live, a life of sinless perfection. I don't think anybody wants to get up on this platform and take the microphone and argue about how sinless and perfect you are, do you? No, only Jesus can claim that. But he lived that life so that at the end of his life, he could go to a cross and die in our place for our sins, suffering hell for us so that we would never have to know what hell is like. But then three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and hell forever, defeating the kingdom of darkness once and for all so that broken people like you and me could forever be free from that kingdom. Amen. This is the good news. And the implications of his defeat are captured in what Isaiah says next about his authority. I want you to look back at verse 6 with me if your Bibles are still open. He simply says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And then in the first part of verse 7, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. I've often heard it said that if you want to keep your friends, there are two things you should never talk about, politics and religion. Well, apparently Isaiah didn't get that memo or he didn't really care much about keeping his friends because in this passage, he addresses both. He's simply telling us here that this child who would be born, this son who would be given, would not only be a religious figure, he would be a political one. And in fact, his claim was that this son would be the greatest political figure the world would ever know. You see, he's looking forward to that future day when the entire world government will rest upon Jesus. You see, we know from the scriptures that right now in the present time, Jesus Christ, he is alive. He is seated at the right hand of God on the throne of heaven. He is ruling and reigning over the universe as king. And we as his people actually get to participate in the increase and expansion of his kingdom right here, right now. But we also know that his kingdom, in a sense, is still invisible, right? I mean, while all authority belongs to him, we haven't yet seen the full effects of that authority as evidenced by the fact that there's darkness that still exists in our world. But what we also know from the Bible, and and this is what Isaiah is pointing us to, is that there is coming a day in the future when Jesus will once again step off the throne of heaven and he will return to earth, not as servant, but as king. And he will set up his throne here among us. His invisible kingdom will become visible somehow throughout eternity. His kingdom will continue to increase and expand and everything darkness has brought about in our world will be no more. I just want you to think about this with me. On that day, listen, on that day, no more hospitals, no more doctors, no more medicine. No more funeral homes or hearses or cemeteries. No more lawyers. No more courtrooms. No more prisons. No more police officers or firefighters or EMTs or 911 operators. No more psychiatrists. No more psychologists, mental health institutions. No more gated communities, alarm systems, locked doors or windows. No more divorce. No more broken families. No more orphaned children. No more armies, no more war, no more violence, no more presidential elections. No more bipartisan politics. Can I get an amen? Somebody. No more political smear campaigns. Just Jesus ruling and reigning as king over all. And where are we as his people? living under His authority, experiencing life in the way it was meant to be for the rest of eternity. Amen? Like this is the hope we have in the great light that is Jesus. But look, here's the great news. You don't have to wait until then to experience that hope. You can actually begin to experience that hope right here, right now. And what Isaiah says next about the character of the light proves that to be true. He says again, that his name shall be called, and I love this. This is just like a preacher. You think he's going to give you one name. Now he drops four on you, right? It's, i got one point left. Eight points later, we're done. So I love how Isaiah does this. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These four names make up the one name. Uh, you either have all those names or you have none of those names. They're interdependent. They all go together, and they're all significant. I mean, you'd know this like I know this, but names are really important, aren't they? Because they make certain declarations about a person's character and identity. And I'll give you a simple example of this. Uh, My youngest daughter's name is Sela Faith. Sela Faith. And we picked that name for her because we wanted to communicate certain things that are significant about her. You see, my wife had a very difficult pregnancy with Selah. Uh, Early on in the pregnancy, we thought we were losing her to miscarriage. And that was especially scary because we had just lost a baby to miscarriage before her. Uh, About 20 weeks into the pregnancy, doctors told us that our daughter might be born with serious health issues. Issues so serious that she might only live a few days after birth. And then when my wife finally went into labor with our daughter on March the 19th, 2015, uh, Amber, that's my wife, she suffered a complete uterine rupture, which in many cases kills the baby. But praise God, not only did my daughter survive all that, but she was born completely healthy with zero issues. And so we picked the name Selah, this beautiful Hebrew word that means to pause and give praise. And that little girl gives us reason to pause and give praise every day of our lives. She is just awesome. Um, But then we also picked the name Faith for her middle name. Actually, my wife picked that. She told me I just had to deal with it, James. This is what it's going to be. And so... I did what good husbands do. Yes, dear, love it. But we picked faith because that little girl, God used her to grow our faith in ways that we had never experienced before. Again, names are important in that way. And the same is true when it comes to these four names that make up the one name that Isaiah ascribes to Jesus, this great light. And I want to walk us through these, all right? Uh, first, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful counselor. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to a counselor. I have. It's awesome. Um, As long as you pick the right one, those people are extremely helpful and beneficial. I would highly recommend going and seeing a counselor, even if you don't need to. Just like pay some money and go do it. It'll be worth it. All right. But years ago, my wife and I decided we were going to go see a marriage counselor. We were about 10 years into our marriage. We had a couple kids and our marriage wasn't awful, but it wasn't awesome. You know what I'm talking about? Married people, don't look at me like that. You know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) We just kind of felt stuck. And so we get up one day and go, hey, let's go see a counselor. and, And let's figure out how to love each other more effectively in the next 10 years than we did in the first 10 years. And so I called up this lady that I knew. We used to go to church with her. And she's awesome. And we went and saw her several times. And this lady listened to us. And she spoke wisdom into our life. Helped us to see things that we could not see on our own And I kid you not, her counsel changed the trajectory of our marriage. That's what a good counselor does. They come alongside of you and they listen and they speak into your life and they give you advice in hopes that the direction of your life will change. And please hear me, that is what Jesus does for you as the wonderful counselor. Because he's the source of all wisdom and all truth, And we know He is because He tells us that He is in John 14, 6. I am the truth. It all comes from me. As I said earlier, because He's worn our skin and walked in our shoes, anytime we go to Him and we talk to Him, He knows exactly what we need when we need it. And if you listen to His counsel and take His advice and follow His teachings, I promise you it will change the course of your life entirely. And I truly believe that some of you in the room today desperately need that. Some of you who are staring at me right now, you walked in, and and be honest with yourself, you walked in and you feel stuck, and you feel defeated, and you're frustrated because you desperately need your life to change, and nothing that you're doing to change it is working. And can I tell you you one of your biggest problems, and and I'm just telling you this because I love you, one of your biggest problems is the fact that you will listen to everybody else except for Jesus. (laughs) Like for some reason, you'll take your own advice, You'll listen to the advice of other broken, sinful people who are telling you how to live, but you haven't yet listened to him. And again, I care about you, so hear me. If you truly want your life to change, at some point, you're going to need to tune out all the other voices and eventually take the counsel of the wonderful counselor. And here's the great news, and I know this from all my own experiences in life. His counsel never fails. His counsel never fails fails. He is the wonderful counselor. Secondly, his name shall be called Mighty God. Mighty God. Uh, back in college, I worked retail down at Arbor Place Mall in Douglasville. Uh, I grew up down in that area. I used to call it Dirty d back in the day, but come on, Kyle, our worship pastor, he's from Douglasville. But I uh, worked at Arbor Place Mall and uh, during that season made one of the worst mistakes of my life. I decided to work all day on Black Friday. I know, I felt that way too, all right? But when I say all day, I got there at 5 a.m. in the morning, and I did not leave until midnight. I have no idea what I was thinking, all right? The entire day was filled with chaos. And after that experience, I swore I will never again go near a shopping mall on Black Friday. And I have kept my word to myself, okay? I know some of you love that chaos, and so here's my gift to you next Christmas. You let me know when you're shopping, and I will give you my list, gladly, okay? Like, you can have it, and you can help me out, but, but here's what I want you to know today. God did not send Jesus into the world to create chaos during the Christmas season. Like, Jesus didn't come to stress us out. He didn't come to empty our bank accounts. He didn't come to cause fights at Walmart. Jesus came into this world to do the opposite, to kill chaos and to create order. You see, that's what the name Mighty God implies. We know from the Scriptures, First Corinthians fourteen thirty three, that our God is not a god of confusion or chaos, but He is a god of of order. Meaning, when you give your life fully over to Jesus Christ as God in power and in might, He takes those things in your life that seem most confusing and chaotic to you, and He starts to give you clarity, and He starts to bring order. And so the good news is, if you're that person in the room today who feels like your life is completely outside of your control, Jesus can do something with that. You can't do anything with that. Control is an illusion, I know some of us think that if we just try hard enough and work hard enough that we can control our lives. No, you can't. Stop it. You're not in control of anything. There's one person that's in control of everything and his name is Jesus. And again, if you will surrender your life fully to him in faith, Jesus as mighty God will start to bring order to those things, those situations, those struggles that seem most disordered to you. He's mighty God. Thirdly, Isaiah says that his name shall be called Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Um, This is not to say that Jesus the Son is the same person as God the Father. Okay, they're distinct from one another as is the Holy Spirit. A better way to translate this name would be Father of Eternity. And this name means a few things. Number one, it speaks to the eternal nature of Jesus. Uh, I spoke to that earlier, so I won't spend a lot of time here. But again, Jesus is not a created being, as some religions and cults teach. He is the eternal Son of God. He was, He is, and He will always be. Secondly, this name speaks as Jesus of the source of all things eternal. For the Jewish people, that's what the word Father meant. Originator or source. This simply means that if you want eternal life, if you want eternal hope, if you want eternal security, you have to find all those things in Jesus. He is, as Hebrews 5, 9 teaches, the source of eternal salvation. But then thirdly, and I love this, this name speaks to the fatherly care of Jesus for his people, to the fatherly care of Jesus for his people. Many of you know that I'm the father to two little girls. Rowan who's seven, Selah who's three, they are completely out of their minds, but I love them more than life itself. Like I would literally throw myself in front of a bus for those little girls. I just love them. Here's what fascinates me about the love of Jesus. Jesus loves me more than I could ever love my girls. Right? In other words, he's a better father to me than I could ever be to them. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord today, the same is true for you. His love for you is endless. It's boundless. It's infinite. It's unconditional. Jesus' love for you doesn't depend on you, what you do or don't do. It depends entirely on what He's done for you. Like if you are in Him, nothing can separate you or cut you off from the love that God has poured out on you through His Son. And that's true for you both now and in eternity. Like Jesus' commitment to you as the Father of Eternity is to love you and care for you just like a good father does for his kids. This is who Jesus is. And then finally, Isaiah says that his name shall be called Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. All right, I'm curious. If I asked you this morning to describe our world using one word, how many of you in the room would use the word peaceful? Okay, that's what I thought. If you were tempted to raise your hand, You're either lying or you don't get out much because our our world is anything but peaceful. And all you need to do is spend about 30 seconds on social media and you will be convinced, right? But let me ask you another question. Would you look up here at me? I, I don't want you checking out. Just listen. If I asked you to describe your own life in one word today, would you use the word peaceful? And be honest, like don't try to get out of that. Don't tune me out. Don't shrug me off. Are you truly at peace today? Listen, I think it's really easy to know the answer to that question because as soon as I asked it, either this great calm came over you and you went, you know what, yeah, I actually am. Or this very sick feeling rose up in the pit of your stomach. And all you could think is, bro, stop talking about this. Quit asking me this. Stop saying that word out loud. If you're that person in the room today who's feeling sick right now in this moment, I have really good news for you. As the Prince of Peace, Jesus came to this world 2,000 years ago, first and foremost, to give you peace with God. Peace with God. This is a peace you cannot give yourself. You can try all you want. Come to church all you want. Follow all the rules you want. Um, Help little old ladies across the street. Be a moral person. There is nothing you can do to give yourself peace with God. The Bible teaches you're an enemy of God. You are at war with Him because of the sin in your life. But as the Prince of Peace, Jesus came to restore you, to fix that. And He gives you peace with God. Listen, not when you fix your life. Not when you clean yourself up or or try really hard to be a better person. No, Jesus gives you peace with God when you simply put your faith and trust in Him as the Prince of Peace. The Savior of the world. The King of the universe. Peace with God. But then secondly, Jesus also came to give you the peace of God, peace with God, the peace of God. Have you ever met that person that's getting completely hammered by life, yet they have this unexplainable peace about them? You ever met that person? It's weird, isn't it? Uh, They get that diagnosis that no one wants. They get that phone call that everybody dreads. Uh, they're walking through a season of pain and struggle that seems like it's never going to end. And you as their friend, you go and talk to them about that. Oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry you're dealing with this. And I'm praying for you. And What can I do to help? And they actually have the audacity to look at you in the face and go, I'm fine. And they're not even lying about it. Like they're telling the truth. They're being authentic. No, no, no. I'm fine. I'm good. You don't need to worry about me. God is so good to me. And God has me. And as hard as this is, I'm going to make it through this. Have you met a person like that? That's the peace of God. It's a supernatural peace that can't be shaken by people, by problems, or by pain. And the great news is that peace is available to every single person in this room today. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, wants to give it to you. And so if you need it, you can know it if, listen, if. You will love and walk in intimate relationship each and every day with Jesus Christ, the great Prince of Peace. Now, before we close out, I want to say one other thing about this peace, and then we'll be done. What I find so fascinating about the peace Jesus offers is that Isaiah says at the beginning of verse 7, that throughout eternity, this peace will continue to increase, and it will never have an end. And I'm not even going to stand up here and act like I know how to explain that. Like, that's just hard. If you know how to explain it, I'll give you the mic and you can tell us what you know, all right? But I'm just telling you, like, I can't get my brain around that. Here's all I know. According to what Isaiah is teaching, that if you know Christ today, for the rest of your existence, somehow life will just get better and better. And the peace of Jesus Christ will flow deeper and deeper in your life. That's what he does as the Prince of Peace. Just two weeks ago, I was wasting some time on Facebook, but it proved really fruitful because I got the close to my message out of it, all right? But I was scrolling around on Facebook, and I, I happened to come across a post from a pastor named Sam Alberry. And some of you might remember Sam. He was here with our church just a few months ago, did a forum for us uh, one night. Just a great guy. But I saw his post, and I got concerned about him at first because uh, he he wrote down the lyrics to a Christmas song. It was actually that Christmas song we sang at the beginning of the gathering. Oh, come all ye faithful! It's like, oh, poor guy. He doesn't know the lyrics. Like he's totally jacked them up. And then I read a little closer, and and I realized, oh no no no, he did this on purpose. And as I paid close attention to what he wrote, the words began to grip my heart. And I want to show them to you. Here's what he said: Oh, come all ye faithless, joyless and defeated. Oh, come ye. Oh, come ye to Bethlehem. And then he went on to write this. Christmas is for the weary, for the messed up, and for the broken. If your life isn't Instagrammable, Christmas is for you. If you are that person sitting in a seat today, and you walked in, and you feel like you are walking in darkness right now, You are joyless. You are faithless. You are defeated. Your life feels broken and your life feels chaotic. Please hear me. You are the reason for this season. Jesus did not come off the throne of heaven 2,000 years ago to come into the world and give hugs to people who have their lives all together. No, Jesus Christ humbled himself and became a servant and he gave his life for people like you. And if you need your life to change today... Jesus can change it and Jesus will change it if you will put your faith in him as the great light who has come into the world to dispel the darkness. And so if you need to do that, listen, I want to help you do it right now in this moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed all over the room. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places. And If you are that person that I was just speaking to, Again, I, I don't think I have to convince you at this point. I'm sure that you're already convinced. But if you know, man, James, I, I need the hope you've described. I need Jesus to be my Savior and my King. I need His counsel. I need Him to be my God. I need Jesus to love me and to care for me, and I need the peace that He offers. And right now in faith, Why don't you just pray and and say something like this to God? Just tell Him, God, I realize and believe today, finally, that Christmas is for me. I believe that Jesus is the great light that you sent to dispel the darkness in my life. And God, right now, I'm putting my faith in Him. I believe that He died on the cross to pay for all my sins. I believe that he rose from the dead to defeat the kingdom of darkness for me. And God, I'm asking you right now, through Jesus, would you change my life? And would you give me the hope of eternal life with you? God, forgive me of all my sins, past, present, and future. Take hold of my life today. And God, make me into the person you've created me to be. I say yes to this great light Jesus Christ himself.